buddies. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohio Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Thank you, Ryan and Sawyer, for that great introduction. Indeed, this is the Outstanding Ohioan Show. I believe Ohio and the people of Ohio have an incredible, wide-ranging, and proud impact that needs to be shared with the world. And it's always been that way throughout the history of the United States. The job of the Outstanding Ohioans podcast is to share these remarkable success stories with an intelligent and curious audience. The Outstanding Ohioans podcast connects to highly accomplished people in all walks of life and shares their secrets to success. And today we've got another great success story to share with you. Thank you for listening. And please leave your comments on iTunes, Stitcher, or the blog posts. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Hello. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. My name is Ron Silico, and this is episode 50-5-0, big milestone for us today. And besides it being a milestone for the number, I've got an exceptional interview today with Ryan Hawk, who is the learning leader uh, right from Ohio, and he's going to talk about what he's doing on his podcast. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Ron, thanks so much for having me, and I appreciate uh, the, the time and the opportunity. Yes, it's, this is so great, and it, something that I learned, I, 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 I really appreciate as a podcaster and know how much preparation you put into your podcast, and, and we're going to talk about that hopefully during our conversation. Um, I prepped by listening to your podcast interviews that you did with your dad, Keith, and your brother, AJ, um, who the audience probably is familiar with and I know you'll speak about. Uh, And one thing that you talked about trying to make your interviews unique is have, have a unique startup conversation right at the beginning, a statement or a question. And I've got to, I have to share this with you is I'm mad at you. (laughs) <laughs> and here's why. Uh, I'm mad at you because your podcast is so good. I <laughs> I have to I have to find time to fit it into my reading schedule and the other podcasts I listen to because it is so good. The the quality of the guests you have uh, as I've gone through and, and listen, I've probably listened to about 15, 20 episodes now. Um, I've read a lot of the books that you and uh, from the authors that you've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually found you because I just did a Google search one day, Jim Trestle podcast, because I'm a big fan of the winner's manual and, and, and just the things that he talks about. And that's how I came across your podcast. So it's something that I want to encourage my audience to, to go to and check out. And, and I know you'll talk about more uh, down the line here, but I, I had to share that with you because it is so good. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I think it, when it comes to the podcast, it comes from a, a pure um, curiosity and a love of meeting and talking to and learning from really interesting people. And um, so it's certainly when when you love doing it, you, I think I love every aspect of it, the prep, the uh, prospecting to find and speak with incredible people and then to learn directly for them from them and then to get the opportunity to share that with the world and, and receive the feedback. Like I'm very fortunate to get on a daily basis from fans and friends from all over the world about how an, a podcast episode potentially impacted their life. Man, there's, there's nothing better than that for me. And that's, that's what it's all about. 
Yeah, I, yeah, and I think exactly the same way, and that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to, to have this conversation because one of my intentions with the Outstanding Ohioans podcast is I'm a lifelong Ohioan. I I love the state of Ohio. Frankly, I think Ohio's underrated nationally for the contributions we make locally, regionally, and nationally. And and I wanted to share those stories uh, mainly for, for my children. I I know we'll talk about your five daughters, uh, but I have a, f- a five-year-old and three-year-old boy. And one of the things I wanted to give them was a inspiration of place and an inspiration of hope. Uh, but down the line that they can listen to to the show and, and just hear about great things Ohioans are doing. And you sure, you certainly fit, fit that mold. Oh, I think it's uh there's nothing, nothing more powerful than children. And, uh, and they, they certainly have inspired people to do some incredible things. And so uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yep. yep. So I wanted to get into talking about uh, the audience is going to hear that. And you've already touched on it. You're a learner. you, you're inspired by people who lead. You're in that space yourself, influencing others. Um, growing up, can you talk about, for the audience, where you grew up, uh, the type of family environment you had, the community, and uh, some of the role models that you had that helped influence you? Sure. I grew up in Centerville, Ohio. Um, it's where I currently live. I went to Centerville High School. As far as role models, um, first and foremost, I've, uh, I'm very fortunate to have two incredible parents, my mom and my dad, who I still speak with on a regular basis. Um, they, they, I think, done a, a great job of, of putting me and, and, and both of my brothers in great positions to be successful. And then they've, they've also done a good job of letting us figure it out sometimes. Uh, as a parent, I think it's really important that you put your, your children in those positions because if you're the, the helicopter style where you're willing to go and always just pick them up off their bike or whatever it may be, um, that can, that can uh, I think, hinder your children later on in life. So, I mean, I think our job as, as, as dads here is to uh, put our children in, in a position to be successful once we are, you know, without us, really, essentially. And so uh, that's what my parents did for me. I had incredible coaches along the way. My dad was my coach um, for many years. I got to high school and had uh, played for two legends, uh, Coach Bob Gregg and Coach Ron Ollery. Uh, those are my football coaches. And then uh, they've, they had, they've had more of an impact on my life than, than just about anybody outside of my, my family, my direct family. And so I'm very fortunate to have them. They, they helped push me when it came to football, and that, that's what helped led to me earning a college scholarship and, and really which what propelled me to everything that I would do during college as well as uh, post-collegiate years. Something that I, I learned from those podcasts I referenced earlier, Ryan, you were an elite athlete, certainly your brother as well. There's so much push for specialization growing up. Speak to, you did the opposite, not only in the wide range of sports that you participated in, but Talk about how uh, you, through your parents and your, yourself, you also sought higher levels of competition. In a couple of different ways. Um, first of all, I think there's an interesting stat that came out. The NFL draft just happened recently, and of mm-hmm. the players that were drafted in the first round, I believe over 90% of them played more than one sport. 
um, in, in high school. So when it comes to specialization with your sport, the only, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know a better word to use for it other than it's incredibly stupid to do that. <laughs> so if you're a parent, put your kids in all of the sports, encourage them to continue playing as long as humanly possible. Growing up, uh, specifically AJ and I uh, were basketball, baseball, football, swimming, tennis, golf, ping pong. I mean, every sport you could think of, we played all the time. Um, and I think that helped develop the competitiveness and the drive and the fire to win. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with having and creating a desire to win. And that was built through year-round competition, not year-round practice, but year-round competition. It's an important uh, distinction that people, I think, should, should really consider. It's not getting a specialized coach to work you out in a gym one-on-one -on -one in the off-season. It's playing baseball. It's playing basketball. I mean, <clears throat> AJ, you know, for, for being as, as good as he is at football, was was a, a phenomenal point guard on the basketball team, the best baseball player on the team, the best pitcher, the best hitter, all of that. Uh, and that was because we were competing year-round. And uh, I'm a huge believer in that. The other thing my parents did for us was they played us a level up. And what I mean by that is if we were in third grade, we played on the fourth graders team or fourth and then the fifth graders team. And that constantly put us in positions to face adversity, to face better competition, to force us to level up our game. It's something I try to do to this day is to level up the five closest people to me outside of my family, meaning you're, you're going to be the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So I'm always working to level up that group of five. The same thing could be said for our our, our growth as kids and our formative years by, by playing against better competition. It forced us to get better quicker. And that I think led to us earning college scholarships and playing professionally after, after college. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a great message to share and being in the recreation and sports space as well as I, I, I see the benefits of that and, and you hit the nail on the head. What, what led you to specializing in college? Was it strictly because of the scholarship opportunity? Football was your favorite. What made you <laughs> well, choose? That? I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't good enough at basketball or baseball to get a, to earn a college scholarship. If I would have, I mean, I would have loved to play multiple. It's it's much tougher to do once you get to college. It very rarely happens. I mean, you could probably think of the people on one hand of who actually successfully is able to play more than one sport. I think once you get to college, you're at an age now where, and also too, I mean it. I don't need to get into all the details around scholarships, but it can only count for one sport. So, for example, at, at Ohio University, you know, we had a guy who played football and basketball. He's a great player. His name's Thomas Stevens from Springfield here. I played against him in high school, and Thomas was a phenomenal athlete. But the scholarship only counted for football. So the coaches that were not a big fan of him missing all of our workouts, missing spring practice, missing these things when he's on a football scholarship to play basketball. And I completely understand the coaches being, you know, wanting him to be practicing his craft year round. And so it's a little bit different once you get to college. I don't really know. I mean, when I was at Miami, I think Ben Roethlisberger could have played basketball. I think he was good enough um, to, to do it, but he, he didn't because he, he realized he was there to play football. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you can you speak to your college experience and, and talk about how that helped you on your journey to where you are today? 
<clears throat> I mean, how much do you want me to go in depth? I mean, my time at Miami, my time at transferring. What, what I, I'm happy to, to speak to any any aspect. My college years, I could write a book about it. So yeah. I'm just curious I'm, what part. I'm sure. Yeah, that's. Let me try and narrow it down. Well, talk about being at Miami. I'm very I'm very curious initially why you sure. chose Miami. Of course, you and you encountered being competing and, and playing with Ben Roethlisberger, and then mm-hmm. talk about perhaps the decision to transfer and, and what was your, what were your reasons for doing that first off? Well, first I chose Miami because I think it's one of the, the most beautiful places in the world. Um, I mean that. And if you, if you took a picture of what a college campus should look like, that's what a college campus should look like. It's Miami university. I love Oxford. It's about, it's about an, less than an hour from my home. Mm-hmm. Um, the coaching staff, uh, they, they recruited me harder than, I mean, they, they, they showed me the love, uh, coach Ron Johnson, coach Terry Hepner, the late great Terry Hepner, mm-hmm. who I love. Um, they, they did an incredible job, uh, recruiting me. I love the thought of the offense. I thought it gave me the best possible chance to play in the NFL. I love the guys that were already there. There were so many things I loved about it. Uh, you, what, what you mentioned did, However, happen. I, I also happened to be in the exact same recruiting class and playing the exact same position as Ben Roethlisberger, the greatest athlete in the history of Miami University. Yeah. And so, I, um, the, from a timing perspective, some would say it was not ideal because we played the same position and only one of us could play um, at a time. Um, I, I, you know, as I've matured and grown up, I've I've learned to to fully appreciate what an incredible opportunity it was for me to compete with a world class performer on a daily basis for two full years. Now he beat me out; he won that job. But the the amount of um, effort uh, and and I would say stress I put into those two years of competing with somebody at that's that at that level who's literally will go down as one of the maybe the ten best quarterbacks of all time in the history of the NFL um, is is an opportunity that so few people get to have and I got to have it for two years. Now when it when it came when I realized that I was not going to be the starter unless Ben got hurt I was not going to leave my destiny up to the health of someone else. And so I elected to look elsewhere because I felt uh, at the time that being a starting quarterback was my number one and only priority. And so I, I elected to transfer to Ohio university where then I had to work out for a full year, not playing the games, earn respect of new teammates, and then started for two seasons and was elected captain as a senior, which then set me up for, for life after college. So I think it was the right decision to, to make that move. It was very tough because I had so many, I had 90 great friends at Miami University. I mean, I, the day after I graduated high school, I was the only freshman in my class to move to Oxford, to live in a terrible house with a couple other guys and work out every single day with my future teammates. And I did that. Because I want, I, I knew what what type of competition was up up ahead for me. I knew I was going to be um, competing against somebody who was world class at what they do, and he happened to play the same position as me. So I I need to do everything I possibly could, push myself outside of my comfort zone, go work like crazy to learn every single name of my teammates, so I could become friends with them. Do everything I could to lead as a young guy through my actions and through learning their names and caring about them because I wanted to say, I'm not going to leave anything important to chance when it comes to this competition, when it comes to learning and figuring out how to be the starting quarterback at Miami university, I'm not going to leave anything important to chance. And I did that. 
Mm-hmm. And you know what? The great lesson that I learned through all of that was sometimes you can do those things and it's still not enough. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me. And um, there's nothing. It, it was a pivotal moment in my life. And I'm grateful that it happened. Uh, it was very tough, but it set me up for, for everything else that has happened uh, after that. And uh, I'm very grateful for it. Mm-hmm. So you transferred to OU. How did that experience compare to Miami? And how, how did you feel your, your career turned out overall? Well, it was really tough at the beginning because I was leaving all of my friends. I mean, I, I hate it. I, I built up, like I mentioned, I learned everybody's name within those, those two and a half months of moving there after high school. And I had to leave those guys and leave all of my very, I mean, I love everything about Miami. I still tell people if they ask me where they should go to college, I say, you know, go to Miami. It's, it's incredible. Um, but OU was, was such a, uh, uh, an outstanding fit for me and my personality as well. I, I, I figured out the, the quickest way to earn respect from your new teammates, especially when you're coming from a place that they don't particularly like <laughs> is to, is, is to put your head down, to shut your mouth and to work and work like crazy and work hard. And so I made it, made it a point to, to work as, as harder, as, as hard or harder than anybody else in the weight room, in the film room during spring practice, all of those things. And it eventually led to, to earning that respect. And, and so, uh, the, the toughest thing about OU was the fact that at times our team wasn't, wasn't that great. And so we didn't, uh, win a ton of games. We had some really big highlight moments, but there were other tough moments too, which, Again, it's just like when I think of parenting, like it's, it's, it's very, uh, I think your kids need to be put in positions to where they do get beat down sometimes, where they do lose so they can feel what it's like to not win, even when you're trying your hardest. And so I, I've, I've experienced some of those moments both at Miami and, and OU. And, and, and again, that's what's helped set me up for life after, uh, after college. I have a feeling people in the audience would like to hear because you had your dream being a college starting quarterback. You, you did achieve that. And then, and then you're thinking professionally, what, Mm -hmm. what, what's, what's the process looking, working with NFL, the scouts, the process of, of of getting ready for that. And then you, you went to an alternative route when the, when the NFL didn't happen for you. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, the preparation, I think that's all over TV now is from a, from a film study, weightlifting, throwing. I mean, all, all of that was happening pro day. Um, all of those things. I did all that. I got a few workouts in Buffalo and New York, uh, Tennessee. So I went to a few different places, um, that I was able to work out for NFL teams Did not get signed by an NFL team signed briefly, uh, in the CFL, the Canadian football league for the Hamilton tiger cats was there for a very short time then was picked up in the arena football league and played for the Birmingham steel dogs. So where I was able to go down there, which was a, a fantastic life experience. I was, um, there was nobody on the team who was North of, um, Tennessee, uh, other than me. And, uh, I want, had to go down there and again, earn the respect of these guys who I was kind of an outsider. Um, uh, just a, a great life experience for me to move and live in Birmingham for about six, seven months, play that season. We had, we again, had some success, had some tough moments, but earned, earned the respect to, to again, be the starting quarterback, to be voted captain. Uh, I would not trade that experience for anything because I, I learned a lot about myself. I think just from a, from a, uh, the importance of pushing myself outside of my comfort zone, I was kind of on my way or that helped put me on my way to where I am now, uh, that I was not, 
I didn't like being outside of my comfort zone before I moved to Birmingham. And I think that helped me uh, understand how important it was to do that. And uh, I loved it. I mean, it was fun. As a quarterback, too, playing in the Arena League is great because you're throwing pretty much every single play, throw a lot of touchdowns. I mean, my very first game as an Arena League quarterback, I threw more touchdowns than I ever had in any game leading up to that. <laughs> and so it's um, that that was that was pretty fun, and we won. So uh, I, 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 anyone who's playing quarterback, and if you aren't able to make it in the, in the NFL, I think it's worth it to give it a shot in the Arena League. I'm curious to find out about what, how, how you dealt with this and process this. Those of us that compete athletically, it happens at, it happens at different points, but eventually it stops for everybody. You can still play recreationally, but the competitives where you're, where you're just out there, that, that comes to an end. How did you transition into your next step of your journey, and, and how, how, where were you at emotionally with that? Uh, it's very hard. There are definitely moments where you're depressed. Uh, I actually go in, on on college campuses and speak about this very moment to, to kids to help them prepare for, for this moment um, better than maybe I did. I was very invested in becoming a professional athlete. Um, did not think a lot of an alternative um, option, really. And so there were just extraordinarily tough moments when that was over uh, or when I realized that it wasn't going to happen. And uh, emotionally, I think a lot of people go through this. You um, there's there's not really anything that has that can match um, those moments of playing in front of one hundred and seven thousand people or going on the road and at the University of Kentucky and hearing hearing 60,000 people boo their team because we're beating them at halftime. I mean, there's nothing Mm -hmm. That can compare to those moments that you can do outside of it, or at least I haven't fully found that. However, there are things that can help you get close. Um, me, the the nervous anticipation I get before going up on stage to give a speech in front of a lot of people, that is a very similar feeling as I as I got in a locker room before I went out to play in front of a lot of people as a football player. In fact, I might even it might even be more nerve wracking and more anticipation to give a speech because you're not wearing a helmet. You don't have any teammates. You're up there on your own. And so I, I, I seek out opportunities to get that feeling because I think it just always innately we will, will be a part of me that I want to, I want to feel that. And so I look for opportunities now that's going to, that are going to make me nervous. that are going to make me have huge anticipation and then make me feel really great. Actually, when I do a good job and it's over, that's how football felt for me. And so speaking has been the closest thing that has done that for me. And that's why I'm continuing to do it and continuing to work on it and get even better so that I can do more of it. Curious about hearing your perspective on this only because it's constantly in the news and I'm not sure why football is the only focus because you hear about in soccer and hockey as well. Concussions. Being a former football player, now being a parent, would you let your children play football? How do you feel about the risk and the safety and all the things that you hear about every day? Yeah, I definitely would. Uh, only only because of what it's done for both, not only me, but my, my whole family. Um, I understand the risk. Um, it's a violent game and that's what you sign up for. I mean, there's, a, there's, 
I, I don't want my children to grow up living in a bubble. I realize that, that those things are going to happen. I think from all I've studied a ton about um, how to be a good dad, uh, how to be a good husband. And I think <clears throat> that's one of the biggest aspects of it that I've learned when it comes to raising kids. And I, I, I've already briefly talked about that. So I think when it comes to the concussion thing with football, um, I mean, I've, I personally feel fine. I played up through college and a couple of years after my brothers played for 10 years after college. Um, he, he, you know, I guess we'll never fully know like the long-term effects. Um, or at least we don't right now. We both feel fine. Um, it, is it, do I, do I, is it a concern? Of course. Do I want to learn more about it? Of course. And, and, and I have, but, um, I, I think, the short answer is yes. I would. I think football has has basically created just about everything for me in my life, uh, for for my younger brother as well. So uh, it would be. I think it would be hypocritical for me to say that I wouldn't uh, allow them to play. Mm-hmm. That's great. So we we focus on football. Um, I want to kind of circle back a little bit. At what point in your journey do you do you meet your wife and then? embark on and then what do you do post football what what's your next step professionally i got in the profession of selling uh the reason why i think that was helpful was because it's a very competitive type of a job profession and i grew to um love it uh because you know um i think i i i i you hear people talk about following your passion all the time. And I think, I think the, the advice of follow your passion is abs- is, is actually terrible advice. Um, I think passion is going to ultimately follow you once you master or develop some sort of mastery over something. And for me, when I got into the world of professional selling, I, I just basically immersed myself in becoming as, as good as humanly possible at it. And over time, I did. I began to have a lot of success, and I began to love it. My passion started following me when it came to that that job, the people I worked around, the company I worked for, all of the leadership. And that's that's led to me to doing a lot of incredible things. It led to me meeting my wife. It's led to me um, being a leader uh, in the corporate world. It's led to me creating and launching my podcast. So I think your passion is going to follow you if, if, if you um, – if you find something that you eventually become good at, you feel some some autonomy doing it. You know, study some of Dan Pink's work um, about what drive is all about. Um, that that's how you d- develop passion in, in doing what you love. Um, and, and that's really, I'm still on this, this journey of being in a permanent beta mode, so to speak, that I like to call it because I'm constantly learning and. Uh, working on new and innovative ways to solve problems, uh, doing experiments, uh, trying new things. I think that's all about passion and, and loving what you do uh, every day. Okay. And you had a lot of insight, I would guess, into the sales industry because your dad's in that and he wrote a book. Can you talk about what your dad's sales philosophy is and what you gleaned from that? Well, my success can only follow the success of my customers. That's that's if you had to drill it down to one sentence, that's what my dad would say. And that's how he has always viewed it. That's what his book uh, goes much deeper than that. But that's that's what it's about. Um, you know, 
But with that said, I didn't even realize my dad was was in sales until I was done playing football. I didn't like I knew where he worked. I knew he was I knew he was a leader. I knew he had a lot of people that worked for him, but I didn't really fully understand what he did. I mean, we didn't I didn't like have those conversations. We talked a lot about sports. Um, and, and, and us playing them. I mean, he was not one to come home and brag about the fact that he got a promotion or brag about how much money he made or brag about how many people he led. He just didn't do that. He's not that type of a guy. He's a selfless servant leader. And so I didn't really even know. So I wouldn't say that I was, I grew up even understanding how to sell anything. I didn't, I didn't really do that. I, I, I focused primarily on playing, playing sports. Okay. Okay. But once you got once you got into that space, success. I love that quote. Success. My success only follows the success of my customers. How do you? What were the ways you were taught, or what were the ways that you intuitively tried to do that? What were some of your keys? Well, I had good mentors that I. I so one the first day I got a job in sales, I, I went to the vice president of sales and I said. Can you introduce me to the person who is the very best in this whole office? Who's number one? That was the first thing I did. And it's advice I give to others now too. <clears throat> and he did to his credit. And and that person became one of my best friends. I literally was like his shadow for what, a year and a half. And he actually ended up being in my wedding. He, we became that close and I didn't know him prior to that day. Hmm. And, and <clears throat> that he, his name is Aaron Campbell. Aaron helped me a ton when it came to just learning his process and some of the words he uses and the way he writes all those that mixed within other top performers mixed with great reading, right? There's a, so much, so many great books out there mm. from a, a selling uh, perspective. Certainly my dad's, I read my dad's book, Get Real Selling, when it was a Microsoft Word document long before it was published as a book. And and so I think I, if you put all of that together, I took bits and pieces from everybody I learned from and then injected my own personality, my own style. And that became how I did it. And it was fortunate to, uh, and am fortunate to, to have success. That's great. Shifting gears a little bit. You grew up in a family with three boys, correct? Yeah, me and two brothers. I'm the middle. Yep, mm-hmm. and then I did as well. Uh, you now have five daughters? That's correct. What What's that been like for you? What have you learned <laughs> <laughs> that you didn't expect? <clears throat> um, How much time do we have? <laughs> I have learned that I uh, don't have as much patience as I thought I did. <laughs> And I wish I was better at that. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk to dads a lot and I ask, I I am constantly asking questions on how to be, how to, how to continuously improve as a dad and as a husband. Um, and, uh, sometimes, um, you know, I, I become like the dad you see on TV when you're driving. We, we took a, a family trip to Chicago last year. It's about a five hour driver or so. And I even went into the, 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 the drive saying, okay, I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm not going to get upset. This is going to be a beautiful, great family trip. And I, and literally I raised my voice before we got out of our, our street. So within, <laughs> within, within 60 seconds. So, um, that, is a, I am an absolute work in progress with that said, I understand, I'm, I, I understand what, where I excel and where I don't. And I think it's good to work on both of those areas, uh, and, and at least have some self-awareness when it comes to 
what good dads do. And I think I'm, I, I, I truly feel good about that. I think I'm getting better. I, I do think there's still a lot of work to do. Um, but my wife and I talk about this obviously every single day. It's the most important thing we will ever do. And I know that. And so it's, it's something that, um, I'm always open to learning and reading about. There's some, so many great, uh, people who write about uh, being a parent. I read a lot from Adam Grant when it comes to, um, how he, uh, the research behind how to raise great kids who are going to be able to, to, to leave, lead, lead productive lives when, when they're not with you anymore. And, uh, that's really important to me. That's, that's like, that's our legacy, right? That's what we want more than, than anything. I've heard the beginnings of your podcast where your kids are, are, you know, introducing the show. I think that's um, a cool moment <laughs> that, uh, they get to be a part of that. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you're, you're right. And gosh, I, I feel the same way. So many things. I, I love the podcast with Jennifer Leahy. That's you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just Jessica. Yeah. Uh, Jessica. Just, yeah. so I just got the library book uh, to read that. And uh, yep. you're right. It, it is a work in progress. And, <laughs> and boy, it's just something that I learn every day. And I've kind of identified, I've narrowed it down to th- maybe two or three trigger points yeah. <laughs> that I have, but it's the same thing, just trying to have that patience. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the things is when they bite each other, that is a trigger point for me. <laughs> and by golly, I have to do everything I can to try and press pause uh, and, and be calm just to, just to, just to make it a productive conversation and, and yet make them aware that this is not something that, can continue or there's consequences to it. So it's, you're right. It is an everyday challenge and, and an everyday reflection of, boy, what, what did I do there? And, right. Yep. And, and what's the next step? So you, for the audience, if you, if you could share your, you're in the sales space and then how do you get interested in podcasting? I think you did it probably from listening to them first and then mm-hmm. think about, how you got interested in perhaps doing your own and what steps did you take to learn how to produce a great podcast? A couple things there. So one, I, I got my MBA after my undergraduate degree and I thought I wanted to continue to educate myself. So I actually looked into PhD programs in some form of leadership. Uh, actually even sent, sent in, uh, some of the early applications to the university of Chicago to do a program there. Um, I then took a step back and looked at the curriculum and realized that, um, I didn't want to do all of that stuff. I wanted to do some of it. And so I thought, is there a better way for me to learn about the art and science of leadership than going and getting my PhD? So remember that story, then couple it with this. I also had an incredible dinner with a guy by the name of Todd Wagner, Mark Cuban's business partner who started broadcast.com with him, uh, originally called AudioNet, And he sold broadcast.com to Yahoo for over $5 billion, making him and Mark billionaires. And so uh, I had a dinner with him. We, uh, I just asked him a ton of questions and I realized that I wish I had that conversation recorded. And um, I thought, well, I love podcasts. I don't think I want to do this PhD program, but I wish I had conversations like the one with Todd recorded. Why don't I launch my own podcast where I go and learn from some of the greatest, most inspiring and empowering leaders in the world and then share it with the world and see 
um, if I can have an, make an impact on other people. So instead of just getting my PhD where I'm learning one-on-one or one in a class, I can learn but also impact others and potentially a lot of others. And that's, that's why I'm doing uh, the Learning Leader Show. That's great. That's great. And I know content's so important. And I know you've interviewed John Lee Dumas. I, I watched a webinar, and that's how I learned how to do the, do the structure and how to get it onto iTunes and those kind of things. For someone that's interested in learning how to podcast, what are three to four steps people can take to accomplish that? Well, there's probably um, more than that, but a few a few of the ones I would say, and I've I've been having a lot of these types of conversations with others, even some of my guests who want to start their own podcast. <clears throat> First, obviously, figure out exactly what you want to podcast about. What's your niche? What's your space? Think of your avatar, and by that I mean who is your ideal listener? Who is that person? Right? Okay. So from there. You get that settled. You figure out what space you want to be in. Then figure out what type of show. Are you going to do an interview show or are you going to do one of just yourself? Then you think of ways to pr- produce that show. Okay, you, you getting technical. You know, we, we're using Skype. We use Ecamm Call Recorder. We can record calls via Skype. Get yourself a good microphone if possible, and then figure out if there's a there's a big launch strategy with iTunes too that I followed. If, if you're if you're going to look to launch with a bang, and that is have have a number of episodes prepared for those first eight weeks. Of your podcast because that's that's when you qualify for a section called new and noteworthy on iTunes. They'll literally, if your if your show is doing well, will put your your podcast right at the top of new and noteworthy in front of all these other incredible podcasts that are getting millions of listens per episode. And also uh, that helps with getting ratings and reviews, which keeps keeps that uh, momentum going in iTunes, and that's what I did. So I focused on I recorded 22 episodes prior to launching. I, re- I released three per week during those first eight weeks of New and Noteworthy. I landed in number one overall, New and Noteworthy, number one in business, number one in education, number one in society and culture, which then, then created this huge snowball of people uh, and momentum who continually listened and then passed along to their friends. So now I have you know hundreds of thousands of people in 103 countries all over the world listening to the show. And it started because I understood a launch strategy and understood how to get other people who didn't know who I was, which was the overwhelming majority of people because the only people who know who, who I am are my friends and my family. And obviously, uh, you, you need more than just them listening if you're trying to have to make a big impact on the world. And so I studied all that. I learned it. I'm happy to. I'm always happy to help others who are trying to do it. It's hard. It takes a lot of time and effort and patience. But if you're willing to do it, um, it can be good. But the, the, the second part, which is far more important, is the quality of the actual show. If the quality is not good, it doesn't matter. No one's going to want to listen, or they'll they'll try it out and they'll listen for a little bit, and then they'll never come back. So if the quality isn't good, you know. It's just unfortunate because it's it's not going to go anywhere. It's just like a book, you know. Sometimes books can can launch with a bang, but then people actually read the book and it's not any good, and nobody refers it to anyone else, and then you're kind of stuck. So I think podcasting is the same. I know you've been very intentional with this. What what do you hear from feedback from the people that do listen to your show? What are the takeaways that they get? And how much is that aligned with your purpose in, in doing the show? That's the very best thing about doing. The very best aspect of 
doing my podcast are those emails I get from fans who tell me um, the episode on negotiation helped them get a raise. The episode on uh, career fulfillment helped them bounce back from when they got laid off and put together a resume and got their next job. Helps Helped inspire somebody to create a blog, which created a product, which created a business, which created them the ability to leave a job that they hated. Those types of emails are literally the best, man. And so I, so I, I, I love getting that type of feedback that someone can say, I listened to this, this episode was so-and-so and it inspired me to, to do this. And so if, if it's inspiring and empowering people to take action, to actually do something, there is nothing better. Mm-hmm. That's great. That is really great. Mm-hmm. Something that, I, that I've learned through podcasting, and I wanted you to kind of elaborate on this. I, I know for mine, I developed an, an initial core list of people that I, I wanted to interview and, and then and then reached out and, and contacted them. How did you identify people that you wanted to interview and what was the response as you went out and did that? I created a list in Microsoft Excel of about <clears throat> 125 initially. That list now is over 400, but and I could regularly add people. I, I literally, the, the, the key qualities that I look for in a guest, they have accomplished something uh, very impressive. Uh, they have some. They have led other people in some way, shape, or form, and they can tell their story in an educational and entertaining manner. If they can do those things, that's who I want. And so it doesn't matter the specific niche in which they led. They can be uh, an athlete, a best-selling author, great TED Talk, a CEO of New Balance. I mean, you name it, all across a solo entrepreneur, whatever it may be. If they, if they have those qualities, then I'll want to talk to them. And so initially, I just made a list and I started cold emailing everybody. I still cold email people on a daily basis. I, in fact, I've already done two today. The difference today now, though, is I get a ton of referrals and that helps me out a great deal. So I'll have a guest on. For example, I have Simon Sinek on and he says, you know, you should talk to Gary Ridge. He's the CEO of WD40 and he embodies the exact methods of leadership that I believe in. I've talked to him. He'd be great. Right. So then I go and he introduces me and I have Gary Ridge on my show. And so I think those, those things regularly happen for me now, which makes it a little bit easier. Uh, but a lot of the work was done early on. And I still, as I mentioned to you, uh, and this comes from my, I think days of selling, I, I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't prospect. I think as a salesperson, you've got to prospect every single day. And I think if you're in the line of work that I do when it comes to, you know, having a, a podcast that's going to influence millions of people, you need you need to be uh, always seeking out really impressive leaders, and, and so that's what I do. That's great. Uh, I'm a big fan of the book Wealthy Speaker 2.0, Jane Adkinson. Jane, I know yeah. you re- who you just recently interviewed. Mm-hmm. Reason I bring that up is she talks about the funnel. Talk about how the podcast. Besides just doing the podcast for your learning and sharing with the audience, how has that impacted you as you're trying to develop this learning leader philosophy and, and a business? How the, uh, I'm sorry, say, can you say that again? Sure. How, how, how doing this podcast has really launched you into becoming a speaker, 
developing this business yeah. of of being in the leadership space? Well, I mean, it's it's, it's created a platform, mm-hmm. and uh, as as the great Michael Hyatt would say, that's that's one of the hardest parts is you got to create a platform for yourself. And my podcast has done that, which has led to opportunities to write for the places like the Huffington Post and others. Is is, is led to opportunities for people to ask me to speak, and. Um, I think if, if you do a good job at, at, at from a podcasting perspective and people hear it and they share it and it spreads and there's momentum created, they're naturally going to want to take that, you know, that voice they hear and say, will you come and, and do this for my group in person uh, live? And, you know, that's awesome. I mean, you know, that's what I want to do. And so when, when people do that, I, um, I really prepare for those opportunities to, to crush it and so that to make sure that when I get a chance to get up in front of a group of people that I want to have a line of people at the end of the speech coming up to me telling me the specific way that I just impacted their life. It's just like those emails that you get them more in real time, right? It's live. And so uh, the, the platform has been created from the podcast, which has given me other opportunities. And now I'm making the most of those opportunities. Oh, that's great. Using the podcast, and I, I, I know you've, you're thinking down the line with this, what, what do you see as the next step in your evolution as, as you're progressing in this space? Um, I don't know. When it comes to the podcast, I am going to continue – me personally, I'm going to continue to double and triple down on, on guests and on uh, production quality. And, and doing, I'm just I'm updating my website, learningleader.com right now, which is going to look incredible, and there's going to be more features on it that I think my listeners and fans are going to like. Um, uh, I, there's a great article that Ryan Holiday just wrote on Tim Ferriss about the power of of, of media when it comes to podcasting and on demand audio, which I think is only going to continuously grow. Currently, the people who listen to podcasts now, it's about a quarter of our population in America and more more so in other countries. Uh, I think it's, it's the top level, highest earning uh, people are the ones who actually listen to podcasts, the smartest people looking to grow and to learn, which is, which is absolutely great. That's, those are the people that I want to be connecting with. Um, that's the market I want to be talking to. That's the market the advertisers for my show want me want to be listening to my show. So I think there's a lot of opportunity as it continuously grows. Yeah, that's I, I heard you talk about that when you were having the conversation with AJ about just the future of podcasting and uh, working on a college campus. That's something I'm always encouraging my student staff to do in the classes I teach, saying. After finding out, well, what, where do you want to work when you graduate? One of the first things I say is you need to go f- see who's in that, who's in that space from a podcast standpoint, and you need to listen to them so you can get insight and learn the language of the industry. So, mm-hmm. um, and I know you've spoken to them before. It's about how it's going into cars and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the on-demand thing. It, it's. And that's in the, it's not just podcasting. It's the value of things like YouTube and just that ability for listeners to control the content just as much as the people producing it. It's it's amazing how it's transforming really the industry and, and the way people are learning. It's 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 well, a really neat thing. Yeah, I mean, look at just look at how your kids uh, take in media now. I mean, they're still young, but. They, it's all on demand. So they don't want to sit in front of a TV and wait for a show to come on. It's all DVR. It's all on demand. It's all YouTube. It's all, 
things at their fingertips. And that's only going to continue to grow. So that's why I love the fact that our podcasts are on demand listening. You listen when you want, you listen to who you want to, and then you don't when you, when you don't want to. And so, uh, I like being a part of that versus some of the others who might be in like live radio or, uh, live, I don't know, the, the only really things that people watch live to or listen to that are live now are sports. So outside of live sporting events, people don't watch them live. That just isn't the way the world works anymore. And it's certainly only moving more away from, from live uh, events uh, outside of sports. Right. Something I wanted to ask you that I'm curious about is you interview people and you're taking in all this information and, and how people, the best practices, et cetera. If you had to sum it up, what what is your leadership philosophy? What are the what are key components in your personal philosophy? Well, I believe everyone has the capacity to lead, and my role that I view it as is I, I help them do that. Um, my goal is to create more leaders, not create followers. And I feel uh, uh, like I'm indebted to the ones that have come before me. The great the great leaders that I've had in my life. I mentioned my parents and some of my coaches and now the people that I get to learn from on a daily basis when I record podcasts with them. So, uh, I mean, my, my philosophy is on finding ways to get that out of, of people who maybe didn't fully realize it was even there. Cause I do believe anyone can be a leader. I don't think everyone should be, but I believe anyone can be, they all have the capacity to do it. And I view it as my role to help, help them do that. Oh, that, that is terrific. Uh, I know you ask this question all the time, so I wanted to ask you, what what are the common keys to success from all the people that you've interviewed? If you, if you had two to five points that you could sum up, what would those be? They're very curious, mm-hmm. uh, first and foremost. Um, the most interesting and intelligent people that I've ever met who typically that, that leads to success have uh, just this innate curiosity about the world and wanting to ask why and wanting to find new and innovative ways to solve problems. As I said before, I think they're always also very courageous. They have a lot of courage and, and, and Simon Sinek and I talked a lot about this, the fact that they have the courage to stand up to what they believe in. They've taken the time to actually think about what they believe in and they have the courage then to stand up to that. The other thing I've, I've noticed in people who are who have achieved big things, who have sustained excellence, is the fact that they typically have a great uh, level of confidence mixed with humility. Hmm. Meaning they're they're very confident individuals. However, they're, they're humble in the fact that they realize they haven't got it all gotten it all figured out yet. So they're constantly learning. That curiosity comes back into play. So a mixture of confidence and humility, I think, is a a big um, key component that like, I, I think of my dad, he, he's got, he's got a lot of that. Like he's, he's very confident guy. He's very smart. He's intelligent, but he also knows that he doesn't know everything and he, and he approaches the world that way. And I think that's really important for, for great people and great leaders um, to, to have that mixture. That is great for someone what what you what would you recommend for someone who is maybe just on the cusp or they feel like they're not on the cusp and they're just seeking they're they're trying to do something to get that breakthrough in their life 
what what are some actions that you would recommend for them to accomplish that? Well, first to find what you what what do you want to do? I mean, what, what exactly is it? Because I think it's 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 amazing when you sometimes talk to people like this and they haven't really even thought about that. I mean, mm-hmm. take time to sit and think and be bored. Seriously, take time to sit and think about what exactly it is that you want to do from a breakthrough perspective. I mean, that's that's kind of a a tough term. Um, I'm not sure like if we ever fully break through, but, but, but sit, sit back and think. Now I have some tactical things that I think can help anybody as far as routines. Uh, I mean, I, I think having a morning routine is, is vital to, to success. I think it's also another common characteristic in people who sustain excellence is the fact that they have a regular morning routine where they wake up, they do some sort of meditative process where they think, um, you, you have to show gratitude. And I, I think using some sort of journaling can help with that. I use something called the five minute journal where I write what I'm grateful for every day. I write down what would make today great. So I define one day goals and then I write positive affirmations about myself, uh, things that I am or I want to be. I think those can help you get, prepare yourself to get in the mindset to be, you know, there's, there's only, there's only a, uh, there's not a lot of things we actually have direct control over, Ron. But I think one of them is your attitude and your mindset. So you need to get yourself in the right frame of mind every morning as you prepare for that day, so that you're intentional in your actions. And uh, so there, there's a lot of tactical things I could probably go into, but that's one piece of advice that I tend to give to people because. Um, they usually don't have any sort of routine other than getting up and getting their kids ready for school and then going to work. And there's, there's, there's other things we can do prior to that, that can help us. That is, that is wonderful stuff. That is great. Uh, last question I wanted to leave for you with you, Ryan, uh, you're doing great work. And, and I, and I shared with you at the beginning about how much I enjoy listening to your podcast and the variety of speakers. And, and it, and it has, has impacted me in a lot of ways. What I wanted to ask you is what, what's the legacy that you're hoping to leave behind with your work? Well, I guess if people think of me, I mean, it's, um, I, I don't necessarily think about that, uh, a lot. Um, I don't want to feel too self-important, I guess, but, but if, 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 if I had to put myself in that position, I would, I want people to to know that I'm uh, an incredibly curious guy who um, has empathy for others, who cares about impacting others, who cares to see other people succeed, who um, is happy for the success of other people, who's someone who is a great husband and, a, and working on becoming a great dad. Um, that's what I would I'd hope happen. I hope together with, with my wife that we can make an impact on millions and millions of people. And I think it's okay to set big stretch goals to go achieve them and then set more goals. And, um, and so from a legacy perspective, I hope that's what people would think that, that if you, if somebody asked the janitor at my place of work, that he would, he would tell you, um, that I was a good guy, that if you asked the guy who, who vacuums the floor where I work, that he would tell you I was a good guy and that, if you ask my boss, that they would say the same thing. Uh, I, I um, have a. I despise people who kiss up and kick down in their place of work or in any area where they find an important person and they kiss up. And if if they if they deem other people not important, they kick down. Um, I hate that more than anything in the world. I don't want to spend any time around those types of people. Um, so uh, I 
actively and consciously live the opposite of somebody who does that. And uh, I hope that's what other people would say too. Wow. That is, that's a great answer for people. I want to, that have heard this podcast. I know they're going to want to learn more about you. How can people reach out to you or, or learn more about the work you're doing? Uh, learningleader.com is my website. Uh, and then Twitter, I'm pretty active is at, at Ryan Hawk 12, Ryan Hawk, uh, one, two learningleader.com. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And if you could hold the line, that would be terrific. Great. Thanks, Ron. Thank you for turning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 50 with the learning leader, Ryan Hawk. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great day.